Author Rachel Louise Snyder is here to talk about her memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned. I'm Maria McMullen, and this is Genesis, the podcast. met Rachel Louise Snyder in 2020. In fact, she was one of the first guests I interviewed for our sister show, the podcast on crimes against women. In our first conversation, we talked about her book, No Visible Bruises, that had been released just months prior. This year, 2023, Rachel Louise Snyder published a new book, a memoir, that lays bare the author's own experiences of abuse, violence, grief, and addiction. Before we get started, I hope you will take care of yourself while listening to this episode. The topics are heavy. The journey and odyssey. So if at any time you need to pause and take some time away from this conversation, you should do what you need to do and come back when you're ready. I learned a lot from Rachel Louise Snyder by reading her memoir. It wasn't just the details or what I did not know about her life story. It was about how those details shaped her. It was about the people who inspired her and believed in her at the times when she could not believe in herself about what grief and loss take from our lives, but also about what they give to us. But most of all, I learned that there is always more to the story, because we have all survived something. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Maria. I'm really, I'm really happy to see you again and that we can make time to talk about your memoir. I did read your memoir. I was just... I felt every slap. I mean, I really did. I really thought it was one of the most interesting, well-written memoirs I've read recently. And I I really appreciate it. I appreciate your authenticity and your honesty and telling the story um, because I, I would have to guess it was very hard to do. And the title was interesting too. It, it took me a, a minute to to understand, but it's like a metaphor, right? Yeah, it's, it is metaphor. I don't know. It's the first book where the title came to me first before, I mean, not, not before I started writing, but sort of very early in the process. Mm -hmm. And it just struck me as um, a way in which what I was learning about as I was going around the world about the patriarchy and the people who paid the price for the policies of the patriarchy were women, women and children. And it also, you know, just from a writing standpoint, it also had this rhythm and alliteration and imagery that I feel like the best titles should aspire to. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought it was very intriguing title. And I'm wondering when the Netflix series is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This, I'm also this, wondering this has Netflix original written <laughs> Yes. Yes. I, I, I believe me. I would love to know that as well. Uh, okay. I have, met, I have had a few meetings as, as they say in Hollywood, you yeah. take a meeting, uh, but meetings are, you know, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I, and I also think, um, you know, there's more and more of these types of stories about abuse and violence being produced in, what do they call it? Like in a series or, or, or in movies. And I think it's a good thing. 
uh, you know, we, we can't really talk about it enough because we're still not getting the attention that we need to get around violence against women, child abuse, uh, and other things. And the nuance. I mean, the thing is, like, you probably know this more better than I do, but for decades, our only reference was the burning bed mm-hmm. because there just wasn't other material that grappled with the situation as in a nuanced way, you know? Yeah. And the burning bed, I mean, we're going back, what, 40 years on that? Yeah, exactly. And now, you know, I think Maid has done a a good job in sort of showing the nuance of domestic violence. I mean, I just think there's a, um, there's an array of trying to remember now the one with Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon and was that uh, big little lies. Yeah. Yes. Big Little Lies. Yeah. That's, that was another one. Yeah. And I think it's still, but it's still happening and we can never talk about it enough, right? There's always more to learn. And there are so many survivors who don't rightfully so tell their story if they don't, if they don't want to, but, um, you've written a lot. You've written a novel, nonfiction works, numerous articles over the year. Why publish a memoir and why now? I mean, part of it was it was just practicality during COVID. You know, I I needed something to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing to do. Uh, no, that's that's the, the the truth is I always knew that I that I had an interesting story to tell. You know, it's not just the abuse that happened in my life. It, it's all the things that came that came later. Um, I'm sorry if you hear my little new little puppy and her collar jangling in the background. We love pets. We love pets. She can't be still. Funny. Anyway, um, so I always knew I had a story, but I didn't. For starters, I wanted to establish myself as a writer first. I think it's very difficult in the world of the the literary world when you come out of the gate with a memoir, you become that story in some sense, and then Mm -hmm. everybody wants you. That's that's what you end up writing, and I didn't so. Just from a practical standpoint, I didn't want to be, you know, sort of relegated in that way. But I also now understand that I I just needed the years to bring some sort of meaning to what was happening. You know, the the best memoirs, the best writing really is there's the story that you're reading on the page, but there's also the author in the background sort of making sense of it. And I don't think that I could really look back on, for example, my father and some of the decisions he made for many decades, I couldn't look back with a sense of fullness, um, a sense of like empathy. Okay. What was, what was he up against that he had trouble overcoming? Right. Like Mm -hmm. I'd spent decades thinking about that with myself, but it took me this long to kind of think about it with my father. And I also think this is a long answer, but I also think that the book is in conversation. I think women we buried, women we burned is in conversation with no physical bruises. And I think that book established me as, you know, a journalist who who looks at the issue of domestic abuse or intimate partner terrorism from a full lens, right? Lots of different angles. And so I think this time I just sort of turned that lens on myself. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I've read No Visible Bruises and we talked about that on podcast on Crimes Against Women several years ago. And at that time, I would have had no idea that your own story of abuse and um, kind of the intersection with domestic violence that you talk about in this book as well, I didn't realize how real all of that actually was for you within writing No Visible Bruises. And so I appreciate 
the gift of this memoir, and it's a very public way to kind of heal from experiences of abuse. Did you intend to use this as kind of a cathartic experience, writing this memoir, or was it something else? It's funny. I have always resisted the idea of writing as catharsis because in my mind, it was like, no, 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 writing is my, is my job. And this is, this is not therapy, mm-hmm, right? There was a way mm-hmm. in which I, I wanted to separate those two things out. But, you know, if, if getting older does anything for you, it teaches you humility. <laughs> it teaches yeah. you to be, yes. be wrong. <laughs> and so it was cathartic to write this in a way that makes me still even slightly uncomfortable. Like I don't want to think of writing as cathartic. I want to think of therapy as cathartic Mm -hmm. um, or meditation as cathartic, but it was, it was pretty cathartic. And the, you know, the thing is my, my father died, um, which is not in the book, but he died right at the start of COVID. And he knew that I had, that I would write a memoir. No, you know, I'd, I've written this, a version of this many times over the last 30 years um, and thrown them all away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lots and lots of drafts. So he all, he knew that that was coming. And his response actually was, Rach, you just write the story that you feel you lived. You write the truth as you feel you lived it. So he had grown too and expanded. And we were really close by the time he he died, actually. And so in a funny way, this this brought him back to me during those very early months of his, after his death, he died really quickly Two He was diagnosed with cancer and then he died two weeks later, oh my. two weeks a day. Um, so it was really, I just had no, no preparation. No, you know, not that you can prepare for that anyway, mm-hmm. but it just was like, he was here and we had all these plans and then he was gone. And, um, you know, I have a lot of dreams about him and I miss him a lot, even though, he was terrible to me when I was a kid. He was, he was awful. I was yeah. awful too. <laughs> we well, were awful, <laughs> awful to each other. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, having read your story, it's hard for me to, you know, even comprehend missing, missing him um, based on everything that you shared in the memoir. But, but it is your story. And it, it, it's amazing how much you grew like throughout the course of that book, you know, even just the way that you talked about, your childhood experience to your very adult experiences with with your father and with his wife, uh, your stepmother, Barb. And I want to yeah. skip to that part of the book, which is really close to the end, because it's a, there's a, a part where your stepmother reveals something to you at the end of the book when she's dying from cancer. Can you tell us about Barb's experience of domestic violence and how that influenced your own story? Yeah, I... Um my my father is the one who actually told me about her experience of domestic violence and it, I, I i'll answer that but i actually just want i want to get back to my dad for one quick second yeah uh, like how could i miss him how could i love him the thing is of course like all abuse victims we have a much fuller picture of the person who is abusing us right we have the terrible images but we also have these absolute hilarious Mm-hmm. You know, or beautiful or or touching images. And I think it's one of the things that we don't, that we have blinders on when we think about domestic violence. It, it's embedded in the question, why doesn't she just leave? Mm-hmm. The expectation is that love 
shouldn't or doesn't play a part in that relationship. And that's what makes domestic abuse so intractable, in fact, is because often you do love this person who is abusing you. You just want the abuse to stop. Right. There is a movement around the acknowledgement of that, I think, today in the domestic violence community. Like, okay, how do we support this victim? How can we make the abuse stop? They don't want the relationship to end. And, And the problem with seeing it as as abuse separate from love is that it has this knock-on effect with all of our systems. The police then think the victim is crazy. The judiciary then says, Oh, well, you know, they dropped the charges because, you know, they're, they're, they want to stay together or whatever. You know, it has this, our inability to kind of see a relationship more fully and see why somebody might want to stay beyond just, I don't know, the financial aspects or the coercion, right? Maybe they do actually love this person. They just want the abuse to stop. I think it's something that we that we need to include in our conversation a little bit. I'm happy to talk more about that later, but um, I just wanted to say that my dad was a lot of things. He was abusive when I was a teenager. He was also charming and funny and was like the greatest storyteller I know. And all of my humor I get from my father and I look like my father. I don't look at all like my mother, which disappoints me a little bit. (laughs) Um, So I just wanted to say that we can get back to that later. But um, my stepmother, uh, yes, the question about my stepmother, as she was in hospice, uh, she was in hospice for about two months. My father told me that he learned pretty early on that she had been abused by her first husband. And her first husband, she got pregnant at 16. And dropped out of school because that's what you did in the mm-hmm. 60s. You didn't carry the shame of that pregnancy visually. And she married him. His name was Ron. And she actually ended up having two kids by him. Oh, my stepsister and stepbrother. And she divorced him at some point. I'm not sure how old she was. Maybe 20. Pretty young still. But he had been very abusive and he had held a gun to her head. And... My both of them, my dad and stepmother, knew that I was writing no visible bruises in the middle of that. No visible bruises took me about eight years, and so I was—I think I was in edits or something. I'm not sure what where exactly I was, but I went into her hospice room and asked her. I said, "Dad just told me about Ron. I had no idea." And here I had been, you know, researching domestic abuse for a decade or something at that point. And she she kind of nodded. She was very very weak, and she said, um, "Oh, Rach, I just don't I just don't want to go back there. I just mm-hmm. don't want to talk about that." And I decided that afternoon that I was going to dedicate no visible bruises to her because, you know, I don't know. I hadn't made the space for her to share that, maybe, or she had was so many decades past that abuse. And um, my father, I have to say, was never ever abusive toward her. They had a rough relationship in the first five years, but after, after all of us kids were gone, they came to really have a, like a wonderful relationship. Um, and in the, in the year, the last years that they had together, the last 15 years or so, they were, you'd think that they were like a new, a newlywed couple in love. Um, so I decided I would dedicate no visible bruises to her because her story was such a symbol of, the kinds of stories I was researching where there was so much shame and so much pain involved in the discussion that you just didn't talk about it. And that's kind of too bad, you know? Mm. Yeah. And it's similar to um, when people experience child abuse and they don't talk about it. Um, 
don't think about it. And one of what some of the things you you just said reminded me of a quote I've seen where, you know, when when you abuse a child, it it doesn't cause them to stop loving you, the abusive parent. It causes them to stop loving themselves. And you can see that in the pages of your book. Oh my God, I feel that. I felt that. I've never heard that before. Mm-hmm. I feel that in my gut, what you just said. Well, wow. yeah, Amazing. and I, I think I think that that is, it's all over the pages of your book. And I could not stop thinking about that quote. Um, I can't tell you who, who wrote it or where I even saw it, but I find it to be very true. And that hatred that a child has for themselves, because most often victims of child abuse are blaming themselves for what's happening to them when it isn't their fault. And so it's really evident in in the way that you describe still, you know, ha- caring for your father and loving your father and having a relationship with him as an adult that was um, not abusive, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we can't get away from the fact that there were, you know, years of abuse that you experienced from him really in the name of religion and obedience towards a set of rules that, you know, were enforced upon you. And I want to come back to that idea, but I also want to say one other thing, um, because when I first started reading the book, there was a, this word stood out for me, like in glaring big letters. And that word was reckoning, because I could feel a reckoning for you coming in the beginning of the book. And when we get about 80% through the book, that reckoning is revealed. So let's talk about how you came to terms with the abuse you experienced as a child and how it helped to heal that trauma. Yeah, that's, you know, it's it's almost embarrassing for me to say, but I'll tell you this quick anecdote. So the abuse in my family was very situational, by which I mean, there was no abuse before my my mother died when I was eight. I mean, we, okay, we had some spankings with a wooden spoon, but it was the seventies. Everybody did that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever do you mean? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but what I mean by abuse is it was after she died and my father married my stepmother and they got very religious and we would have these long drawn out sessions of punishments with my, with my mother's sorority paddle, my real mother's sorority paddle. And then eventually it just, when I, when I started to fight back around age 14, I started to physically fight back. And then it became, I think, much more heightened, right? My father slapped me, my father, you know, mm-hmm. uh, threw me up against the wall. Um, but it was, it was not the abuse. I, I'm, I make a distinction between the abuse that happened when I was a kid and the abuse that I see in a grown relationship that is situational or trying to control. Like my father was trying to control me because he didn't have any kind of range of other options, I think, right? Like I was, I did run away all the time. I did do a lot of drugs. I came home wasted. I Mm. blew off school. I was eventually expelled from school. So there was an escalation, you know, that was happening. Um, Whereas I think with a lot of uh, adult abuse victims, they, they just sort of cave inward and they lose their, their sense of self, right? They lose their power and the, and the abuse becomes very habitual as opposed to situational, right? Like we're, mm-hmm. we're in this kind of moment. Once I left the house, I was 16 when I left. 
it, it wasn't like that, that abuse continued. Um, I mean, it just sort of stopped. And then, you know, my father uh, didn't really have, he, he, he never really targeted the other kids the way he did me. I, I targeted is, is quite the, is not quite the right word because the other kids didn't do what I did. The other mm-hmm. kids didn't, none of them blew off school. None of them ran away. None of them fought back when they, when they got spanked. I, I did all of those things. So, you know, there was this, it was between me and my father, but I, I was on the book tour for this. And I was, I was in Chicago and a woman named Carla Fisher, who is maybe many of your listeners know her. She's an incredible domestic violence advocate and attorney in Illinois. She's been a source for me um, on many stories. And we were, we went out for dinner uh, after my event and I looked at her and said, I have, I have to ask you, do you think I was a victim of abuse, like domestic violence? And this is, again, like this is six months ago. This is not mm-hmm. while I was even writing this book. And she was like, I mean, she, she was like, of course I do. Of course. I, even the writing of this book, I hadn't thought of myself in that same category as someone who marries an abuser. I mean, that's how difficult it is. Someone like me who has spent years researching this didn't identify as in this way. And I still, I replay that moment again and again, like I have to somehow come to some terms with myself that I was, that I went through a period of abuse. Like, Mm -hmm. It's it's crazy. It's crazy from a variety of angles. Um, but the one thing I I the benefit that I think I had was that I could look back on it. It didn't continue to happen in my life, and so I could look back on it and say, "Wait a minute, that was not my fault, and my father is not sharing responsibility for what was his fault." Yes. The the last Christmas I had with him which was Christmas of 2018. So he died a couple of days before Christmas in 2019. We went out on Christmas Eve morning. We went out for breakfast, just the two of us. And he said to me, this is now a year after my stepmother has died. He's despondent. He's just filled with grief, doesn't know what to do. And he said to me, you know, Rach, um, I think I was really unfair to you and David, my brother, David, which you mm-hmm. know we were our, the kids from his first marriage. I think I was, I was really unfair to the two of you because I was afraid of being accused of favoritism. And that is the closest he ever came to apologizing. Um, That's not an apology. (laughs) Not an apology, but it does show the absolute control that the church had over him in the same way that he was trying to control his family and everyone around him. Yeah. The church was coercively controlling him. Um, Yeah. There are many, many layers to this story, right? And we, we have not even touched on the fact that what really underlies a lot of this was the death of your mother when you were eight years old, because your mother died of cancer when you were eight years old. And then much later, your stepmother also died of cancer. Mm hmm. But in between, yeah, and your father died of cancer. But in between all of that, it from what I I read in the story, you were not given the opportunity, you or David, to really grieve the loss of your mother. 
it was a lot of change. It was very chaotic, um, tumultuous even, you know, where there she is ill for many years and then she dies and you didn't really understand what even happened to her or that she might die. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you are moving across the country and becoming an evangelical Christian. Yeah. <laughs> with it with a whole new family to boot. And so that's a lot for anyone, but not the least of which for a child. Yeah, I um I think my mother dying was of course the original trauma. Mm -hmm. She had been sick my whole life. In fact, you know, my my memories of her are mostly her in bed. And my brother and I were so shocked by her death because we just thought Oh, she's just sick. She's just going to be sick forever. Right. We didn't even, I didn't even know she had cancer. My brother did know because he was a year older and he just, he, he knew more. I didn't even know she had died from cancer for a few years. I don't even know how I learned she died from breast cancer. You know, like, it, like one day it just sort of dawned on me or something, but that was the original trauma. But my mother had been very strict. She grew up, you know, she was from a New England Jewish family. So there was a, she had a bit of the blue blood about her, you know. <laughs> and she, you know, she made me wear dresses to school. I wanted to be a tomboy. She, she, there were a lot of ways that she was controlling in her own way as well. Um, and so when she died, my brother and I had this like two year gap of like, total freedom. My dad's off at work. Mm. We're latchkey kids. We're coming home. We're like just, you know, playing kickball and <laughs> four right. squared. It was my brother and I have talked about that as like the we felt so guilty that we were so happy in those first two years. And then my father gets married and moves us across the country all in a two month period. And that to me, looking back on that, in some ways, is the bigger trauma because he had a choice. My mother wow. had no choice, mm -hmm. right? And so he was making a bad decision. And it really was my giving birth to my own daughter. And, you, you know, you have that moment in the hospital. Mm -hmm. You look at the beautiful face of your newborn that you're meeting for the first time. I liken it to like someone you've had an email relation, an intimate email relationship right. with nine months, but never seen. You're like, oh, that's what you look like. Yeah. And I just looked at her and thought, oh, my God, no, my parents did make a terrible decision. Oh my God, they were shitty parents mm -hmm. when I was younger. Most people have the exact opposite moment, right? Like, oh my God, I understand why my parents did the hard things they did. But for me, it was this absolute freeing of like, you know what? You don't have to bear all this responsibility by yourself. You can share this blame. <laughs> yeah, I was so proud of you. First of all, I'm proud of you for what it's worth for writing this book. You're very, very courageous. Um, but I was so proud of you in that moment because, yes, the burden should not be yours alone to bear. We cannot change the fact that the abuse occurred. But we, you know, survivors tend to reach a point when they do come to realize the abuse was not their fault. That child who hates themselves because they are being abused because it must be their fault does reach a point usually in life where hey, <laughs> someone did this to me. I didn't yeah. cause this to be done to me. And despite anything that you feel you may have done to, uh, to really instigate abuse, like, you know, you had mentioned um, drugs and, and things like that, 
those are more or less ways of acting out because any attention would be good attention. Yeah. Even if it results in abuse. And so there's a whole psychology behind all of that. But suffice it to say, I thought it was remarkable the way that you were able to tie things together uh, toward the end of the book and realize that your father specifically never took responsibility for what was his fault in all of these things, in not fully explaining the death of your mother, in not allowing his children to grieve, and and on and on and on. Um, Yeah. So that in itself, I think, was, you know, had to be a a part in the book where, where I felt you had been liberated. You had, you know, reached a point where you were free from that demon, at least. I think that's a good way to put it. I don't, um, I resist somewhat the idea of healing because I think, at least in this country and culture, it implies that you don't feel the pain anymore. And that, that is not true. Even when you just said that phrase about you don't stop loving the person, you Mm -hmm. stop loving yourself. Like, you know, I could feel myself tearing up. Yeah. Right. The pain is, is always accessible. Because Um, you can, you know, you can still look back at your, your childhood self and remember who that that girl was. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it's just wanting to go back and pick her up and and hold her and be like this is going to be okay. This is going to end. Mhm. Yeah. I I mean, in some ways getting kicked out of the house at 16 was the best thing that ever happened to me because even though it's it's galling and appalling yes. when people hear it, it freed me from that abuse and that coercive control and it also freed me in a much more important and bigger way, I would say, maybe not more important, but to see that I had been living subject to the lies of the church and the patriarchy. That in fact, there were people out in the world who would and did take care of me and who would and did look out for me. You know, people that had no responsibility for me at all, waiters and waitresses and managers at a, at a Mexican restaurant I worked at, mm-hmm. you know, initially they were, they were the first, the first group. And yeah, I think, I think that I'm able to, to look back on that. You know, my father is, um, is worth a book in and of himself. I have a whole box of stuff that I took <laughs> when he died. Cause I just was like, wow, he was a man of secrets. Holy smokes. Like, mm crazy, like a 15 year correspondence with the IRS and all kinds of like interesting things that are left out of the book. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. They <laughs> <laughs> wrote back to him, you know, it's like, holy cow. But it was freeing to think about, I can define the world the way I want to define it, not the way you're going to define it for me. And I'm going to let my daughter define it the way she wants to define it, which includes, by the way, having a relationship with you if she wants one. Mm-hmm. And she did have one. I mean, she unfortunately is, she doesn't have any grandparents left, which is really sad because she's only 15. Yeah. But um, she and my dad were close. And so her memories of him are completely different than my memories. And I'm so glad I was able to give that to her. I think of it as a gift for her. It probably was a gift for him too. That doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is I gave this gift to her of love. I didn't mm-hmm. burden her with my, my, my burdens. I didn't put my burdens onto her, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's really a remarkable gift to give to your child. Um, and that was really clear in the book. Like when you reach this turning point of like, Hey, I'm, I'm letting go of this burden. 
I have this daughter. I have a whole new life. She has a whole life ahead of her. I have a whole new life ahead of me as a mother. And you wanted to do it the way that you wanted to raise her and be her parent the way that you wanted it to be done. Yeah. There's a line in the book. I wanted. (laughs) The kind of parent you would have wanted to have. I'm the parent I wanted. (laughs) Right. Be the parent you always wanted. Yeah. Um, There's your next book title. (laughs) Yeah. Be the parent you see in the world or something. Be the parent you want to see in the world. (laughs) There is a line in the book uh, where you say, cancer took my mother, but religion took my life. And we've been kind of talking all around that in this conversation about the experience of religion and what it caused, the pain that it caused you and your brother and your your step-siblings as well. What else can you tell us about that experience? And do you see the child abuse that you experienced as religious abuse or child abuse in the name of religion or religious maltreatment of a child? How do you define that? I think it certainly began as child abuse that was, you know, not only accepted, but promoted and mandated from religion. Now, let me just say that had all the Christians in my life and my circles been like Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, I probably would have had a very different, uh, right, different right. experience of religion, um, but they were not. And um, they were very strict, very conservative evangelicals who misquoted the Bible, spare the rod, spoil the child, is an affirmation that is used over and over again that actually doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. But it's not just the abuse that I suffered. It's the way in which the church covered up the abuse that other people around me suffered. And that, I I reached out to a cousin of mine not too long ago, um, who was the one of the children of my my aunt and uncle who ran the church and ran the school that was were dictating all these things to my parents. And this cousin just took no responsibility at all. Just took no, like, was like, I don't see my parents that way. And I was like, well, the problem continues then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, it's like, it's, it's not unlike the Catholic church with abuse of, of those children. Um, And there's been no, you know, you used the word reckoning earlier. There's been no reckoning that I can really see. And in fact, I think I, I heard somewhere that spanking is legal in legal to do in schools in a number, something like a dozen States. Yeah. I've also read that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I, that's something I'd like to write about. Actually. I just find that absolutely shocking. Like in, in 2023, as I sit here, talking to you. Hmm. Spanking is legal. And it is, it is always a spanking that comes from a religious uh, point of view. There is no secular point of view that, that, that says spanking is, is an acceptable, you know, form of, of punishment. Right. Because, uh, you know, beating someone into submission really isn't accepted. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's immoral. Yeah. In a lot of states, it's illegal. It's, it's no different, honestly, it's no different than an authoritarian government torturing political prisoners. It's no different right? than domestic violence either. Right. I mean, if you, if you wouldn't hit your spouse, why would you hit your child? Mm-hmm. Which is the, you know, one of the things I struggled with in the book where your father, your, your stepmother described your father as saintly mm-hmm. and never laid a hand on her 
never abused her physically, mm-hmm. yet was abusing the children for the sake yeah. of upholding, you know, some religious values and a certain type of order, Christian order in the household. That doesn't, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand that. I don't, I mean, I'm not asking you to answer that. I'm just. No, I mean, it's, it is part of the, we all have, we do all have blinders. Um, but I also think, I mean, I, uh, in fairness, I also think she evolved quite a lot and he definitely evolved. I mean, by the end of her life and his life, he was doing all, you know, there, I grew up in a very gendered house, right? The man goes out and works. The woman doesn't work. Yes. Um, even during periods when he had lost his job and they're on food stamps and she was like, I, I can go get a job. He, I found out many years later, he was like, no, 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 it's my responsibility. So, the, you know, they had this incredibly gendered expectations. She did all the cooking and cleaning. She was an awful cook, just one of the worst <laughs> cooks I ever encountered and never, never got any better. I mean, just, it was just awful from day one. Um, but by the end of their t- their both of their lives, the last 15 years or so, he was the one doing all the cooking, all the grocery shopping, all the cleaning, all the laundry. So he had evolved in certain ways. And so had she. Um, and I do think that comes, I mean, God, God, God help the person who doesn't evolve as they sure. grow yeah. and age. And, you know, I think she also even evolved when it came to religion. She, you know, she very much, even though she said she could see her angel and Jesus waiting for her, you know, as she was on her deathbed in the, in the years prior to that, she no longer believed in a literal heaven and hell and said that my father didn't believe in it either. Now he never said that to me, but, um, that for them, that is profound evolution <laughs> like that to yes. not believe in literal heaven and hell. So I do think, I do think that when she called him saintly, she was referring to the best version of himself. She was referring to the version that she got when he was, you know, in his seventies and mm-hmm. and into his eighty. He died when he was eighty-one. So, yeah. But that, yeah, you're right. It's it's there's no there's no reckoning there. I guess no, for sure. And so, um, you know, I wanted to ask you too about the experience you had with CPS, Child Protective Services, because there was a point when you were still living in the house and you reveal the abuse to, uh, was it a high school counselor? Yep. Bob Martin. I'll never forget him. He and was Bob Martin told you, you know, looked you straight in the eye and said, I am going to have to report this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you were removed from the home and put in temporary foster care, um, which was also apparently a very challenging situation. So just commenting on, you know, child protective services and and that experience, did it help more than it hurt or vice versa? It got me out of the house for two weeks, which was a breather. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it was about two weeks. Um, I'm sure they must have interviewed me, but I don't recall them interviewing me, uh, which is why it's not in the book, because I don't remember. Um, I know that they did an investigation of my father. Um, and I know because Bob Martin's told me that. Bob Martin told me that. And yeah, the foster home was like Lord of the Flies. It was a bunch of kids, most of them temporary. And we were all just doing drugs. And of course, the the one kid who was the son of the foster father was just the target of our our ridicule and abuse. And oh, the poor kid. I feel so bad for him now. I wish I could remember his name. But, you know, the, the foster dad was a cop. 
mm-hmm. who worked second shift. So I don't even remember what he looked like. All I know is that this in this house, we did drugs and it was chaos and you had your bag of stuff and you kept everything that you had in your bag of stuff um, because otherwise it, it would potentially get stolen or used or whatever. But it was also absolute freedom. So I didn't recognize it as as total chaos until much later. I was like, who approved that? Right. Surely that guy was only approved because he was a cop yes. in a you know predominantly white middle class. Yeah, it was kind account. of a jaw dropping couple of pages. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was also let's see, it would have been about nineteen eighty two, eighty three. So you know, we weren't so progressive and advanced. But I do think CPS. You know, there's a wonderful book that you may have read called uh, "We Were Once a Family." Mm-hmm by Roxana Asgarian. I actually was, I'm proud to say, was on the committee uh, that awarded her a prize, the Lucas Prize from Columbia Journalism School. It's a fantastic book about the, uh, if you remember the story of the six adopted kids and the two mothers, the lesbian couple, and they drove off a cliff in California a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago. Okay. Um, killed them all. Mm-hmm. Um, it made huge, you know, national news. But she went back and uh, investigated the, all those kids. Turns out, three of them who were siblings had a living brother, older brother, who did not get adopted and didn't even know that his siblings had been killed in this manner. Wow. She found out from the reporter it was awful. But she does an incredible deep dive into. CPS, you should have her on your show. She's she's absolutely fantastic. The book is amazing, um, but it's a look at CPS today mm-hmm. and what goes wrong, what goes right, what the barriers are. Mostly, the barriers are that we just don't have enough people. You know, we don't pay these people enough. They're like teachers. They're right. like some of the most important people in these kids' lives, and we pay them crap. And make them work crap hours with enormous caseloads. And what do we expect? How do we expect a system like an overburdened system like that to work? Well, yeah. And I mean, those are really good points. And I appreciate the reference to that book. I also think that we don't spend any time listening to children and what children need and what they want and what their experiences are. And so the system fails children over and over again. Um, That's right. By just not fully taking into the into consideration the whole experience of domestic violence and how complex it really is. So, in addition to all of this, everything we've talked about so far, you spent some time in Cambodia, which is you know talk about abuse, right? Okay, so it's it's a country that has a long storied history with crimes against humanity. And I'm curious how you decided to, you know, come to live there and what that experience was like for you. It was, a, that was a wild left turn in my life. I lived there for six years, one of the most formative experiences in my life. And so when I say domestic abuse is like an authoritarian government, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Pol Pot. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. He tried to coercively control an entire generation. Right. And when he couldn't, he, you know, he arrested people and tortured them and he would get confessions. But but they weren't confessions that were legitimate. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you're going to say anything to stay alive. So I, I, I do think we need to I do think we need to draw bigger lines of connectivity between the way the state 
governments run in some of these countries and what happens inside the home. I don't think there is a difference in in that violence. Mm -hmm. Certainly in the scale there is, but not in the underlying psychology of, you know, people like Putin, people like Kim Jong-un. So I, I moved to Cambodia because I had gone there in 1996 and, you know, it was very... The, U, the first UN elections had only taken place a few years earlier, um, and they were the first elections after the, the genocide, which was 1975 to 1979. And so, you know, the next 12 years after, after the genocide is, is chaos in the country who's right. ruling. What, what, what's our system of government going to be? How are we going to rebuild our society? How can we feed our people? I mean, you know, th- those immediate concerns. And, um, so in 1996, you really could feel, palpably feel the trauma. And as a place, it just stayed with me. You know, it was under martial law. As it turns out, there would be a, a coup just nine or 10 months after I visited that killed 17 people in the capital city. So as a country, it stayed with me. And by then I was a working journalist and the government announced that they were going to have war crimes tribunal, finally, for Pol Pot died, I think, in 1997, but for the other leaders of the Khmer Rouge. And so I decided to move there for a year if I hated it and two years if I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I ended up staying for six. I gave birth to my daughter in Bangkok. Um, it was it was a hugely important time in my life because I learned that a lot of what had been religion dictating my father's life was actually embedded in our culture. It was actual, like, we don't talk about religion as a cultural force, but mm-hmm. it really is. And the way the Khmer is the proper pronunciation, everybody says Khmer, but it's actually Khmer. The way Khmer people live with their brand of religion is very, very different. And it was so eye-opening for me to begin to understand not only what it meant to live in a different culture, but what my culture could be defined as. Like, I don't think you can really define America or what it means to be an American unless you leave America Mm. and look at it from the outside in. Um, And so it was, it it just was maybe the most important thing that, that I've ever done in my life. Six years. I miss it all the time. Well, it's such an amazing part of the book too. This amazing part of the story of you and I took away from that period in your life a tremendous amount of self-exploration for you. Yes. Finding a place where you belong, your experiences in the temple where you really felt at peace, like you felt like, yes, this is this is palpable. This is if there's a religion, this mm-hmm. space is it. It doesn't involve, you know, everything that that was kind of forced on you during your childhood. It was a really beautiful thing to include in the book because I felt like you finally were able to find the space uh, just to exist and take your time with yourself and explore like the, the things that you did not get to overcome or confront when you were a child. Yeah, I think that's very true. I brought home with me uh, many things from Cambodia, but one of the things I brought home is a spirit house, which is, um, you know, a very small version of a pagoda. They have them all over Southeast Asia. And, um, you know, I light incense for my friends. I light incense on the anniversary of my mother's death. It's it's in my yard now. 
it's made of concrete, so it's pretty indestructible. <laughs> um, uh, and I don't, you know, I'm not Buddhist, but I, I believe um, in things that we don't know. I believe that my stepmother saw her, what she saw as her angel. I believe that. Why, why not? You know, um, it doesn't have to be the way that I live. Like one of the most important things I think for me, or one of the most important learning experiences was that you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose between Jesus and Allah and Buddha and Krishna. You don't have to make that choice. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can live a life in which you are open to, to all of it and you get to define your own life. Yeah. And, and there are really beautiful rituals from all different religious traditions. Yes. Um, and when one or more of those really speak to you and, and be, you know, if you feel like you really feel them as part of your being, that's important to note and important to follow. And I haven't been to Cambodia, but I've been to Vietnam. So I'm very familiar with the pagoda. <laughs> Yes, right. And I, re- I just, you know, have these memories of dragging my kids through the streets of Vietnam, going in all these different temples, and then just being like, "Where are we? Like, what is this?" <laughs> they were so they have such a specific smell of sort they of do. wax, wax from the candles and yes. the incense, um, and probably a little bit of mildew and mold in there too. But um, <laughs> yeah, know, from the there's damp- a lot of dampness, a lot of dampness. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, interestingly, the boot, um, the the Cambodian Buddhism is very different than Vietnamese because Vietnamese are descendants of China. So they, they have um, Tibetan influences and, mm. that, and Cambodians are descendants of India. Okay. So they look, you know, you see a lot of sort of like curly haired Khmer because they're, they're descendants. So if you look at Angkor Wat, for example, you find a lot of imagery that is pulled from both Buddhism and Hinduism. You'll find a lot of Hindu gods represented in the carvings there and, um, so it's really interesting. They have a kind of their Buddhism is a blend of Hinduism, animism, and what we would recognize as as Buddhism. So you know that translates to things like there's a life in everything. Um, you know they believe there's a life in in everything. They believe that dogs can see spirits, and um, they believe that there is a spirit world just sort of running right alongside our our human world. It's it's a it's fascinating. It's sort of beautiful to think of our ancestors, for example, living in this spirit world. Yeah. And you talk about that in, in the book when there was a, a neighbor that died, right? And there was a really beautiful um, extended period of time of kind of mourning and remembrance of this neighbor so that she would feel supported when she left this mm-hmm. this experience and went into the spiritual realm. Um, yeah. And it, it sounded... It sounded like that really spoke to you, like it was really meaningful to you, was it? It was meaningful to me because, of course, you know, I, it was a man, uh, our male neighbor. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. How would you know that? I guess I, I, I don't, don't know. I I, I, <laughs> um, because, of course, I want to think of my own mother, you mm-hmm. know, as accessible in a certain way. And, yeah, they close. They, what they do is they close down the street in front of the person's house, uh, the family's house house where they've lost their their loved one and the monks come very early in the morning so early in the morning (laughs) and they start their prayers through very low quality speakers (laughs) but they start their prayers and it's it's seven days Um, they hang a white alligator flag outside so you know it's a funeral Mm -hmm. you know it's a mourning period and people just come 
there's there's no invitation really people just come and they sit for a while and they leave and they come and go and they have soup noodle soup and they're available to pray with the monks and you talk to the families and the spirit of the departed person is just going from house to house to say goodbye to say their goodbyes Mm -hmm. um, before they go to their next plane of existence and at the end of seven days you you collectively as a as a group march or walk or drive whatever to the pagoda with the monks and that's where they're they're cremated so it's a very communal in some ways it reminds me of sitting shiva um yeah i was just thinking that i was just thinking the same thing yeah and you know we we didn't sit shiva for my mother we we only did that for about two days um because my father was christian my mother was jewish and i think what would it have been had we done that for her? How would it have given me like a period of time to breathe and mourn and commune with people who loved me? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and you know we have. I mean, I have this. I had a dog Kamau that I got it right when I moved to Cambodia. I got her in November. I had moved there in like August or something, and um, she uh, Kamau means black or black spirit in Khmer. And our neighbors all said like, oh, she can see, of course, like all the other dogs, she can see the spirits. And I, I sort of didn't put much stock in that. But then when this neighbor died, um, Kamau was sitting in the corner of our living room, staring up at the corner hour after hour after hour. And so much so that I was like, is she, has she gone blind? Like mm. what's going on with her? And it was our, our landlord's nephew came upstairs. Pusit is his name. And he sat down and he invited us to come and have noodle soup and, and mourn the neighbor. And then I pointed to Kamau and said, you know, Pusit, she's been sitting like that all day. And I was kind of laughing about it like crazy dog. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, well, she, she's seeing the spirit. The spirit is waiting. The neighbor is waiting for you to say goodbye so that he can move on. And I was so struck by that. I was like, wow, OK, I uh, okay, I see. <laughs> yeah. And it's, what's really interesting um, is that it sounds like this experience of death in in this Cambodian town, it, it's integrated within the experience of living. Whereas in America, they're two distinctly different things. You are alive and then you are dead. So there's a, a living experience of you being alive and then there's your death and there's that mm-hmm. experience. They don't exist in tandem. Yeah. And you you kind of talk about that in the book when you say, you know, you refer to the space, quote, between alive and not alive as quiet violence that silences all of us. And so that that we can't really in American terms or culture kind of get our our vocabulary around what that is when we're alive and then kind of experiencing an illness that leads to death. And then they don't exist in the same space. They're separate. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I think a lot about my stepmother in hospice because she had this period of time where her consciousness and awareness was a a place separate from us. She wasn't technically dead, Mm -hmm. but she was seeing things that we weren't seeing she was inside of her body in a way that none of us, you know, who are fully alive are inside of our bodies. And, 
you know, in Cambodia, the, when a person dies, the body is kept in the house for a period of, of time, those for those seven days. And people can come and pay homage to them. The younger kids and the older, like it's women usually, are washing the body as a way to take away the stigma of death. Mm. And I think, you know, I had a, um, a research assistant who talked to me about her grandmother dying and how, you know, she had to sit with her grandmother's body all night with her mother. And she said, you know, at first I was scared and then it was just normal. And then I was bored and it, it really did take away the stigma of death. And later, many years later, when her own mother died, she felt the sacredness of washing her, her mother's body and wrapping her mother's body and just being in that space that is not quite gone and also not quite there, you know? And th- um, this was a person in Cambodia? Yeah, yeah. Khmer woman named Sophia, friend of mine, good friend of mine, is still a friend of mine. Um, but it was so beautiful to hear her describe it. It was like her last kind of communion with her, with her mother. And I think, you know, I've, I have a friend here in the States who's training to be a death doula and mm-hmm. is wanting to do that same thing. And there's some, there is something very sacred to me about that idea and something so profoundly intimate, like more intimate than, than sex, more intimate than, you know, I would say as intimate as giving birth. Yeah. Uh, yeah but- just as it's, it's one of the most profound human experiences, but you know, there's no one there to talk about it after. And it's it's something that is done around the world, but in, in American culture, it's rather new to our experience, or it's reemerging in our experience. It probably did exist um, many years prior, and then just wasn't part of American culture for a while. Well, it was commercialized. You know, we turned it mm, into a capitalist yeah. culture. <laughs> yeah, like everything else. Like everything else, exactly. Speaking yeah. of the American experience and really swinging this pendulum back the other way, tell us about your experience at Barbizon and then the influence of both your maternal grandmother and that this experience had on your life. Oh my gosh, Barbizon. Crazy. I'm old, en- I'm old enough to know what that is and reading yeah. the words in the book just had me laugh out loud. Oh um, my God! We may some need to the, we may, may need to fill in some of the gaps for people listening who may not know what Barbizon. Yeah, I mean some of the some of the turns that this that my life have taken have been. And many of them were serious, but there were some that were just ludicrous, and this was one of them. And so my grandmother, you know, my mother's mother was this kind of New England staunch New England blue blood Jew. Mm. Um, you know, she didn't have a lot of money, but she was solidly middle class, probably at times in her life upper middle class, um, and. When I started to fail out of school and, you know, she didn't, she lived in Boston. So she, she wasn't sort of up close to what was going on. So she had only kind of snippets and she would see me come in the summertime and I'd have, you know, thick black eyeliner on like yeah. rock and roll, you know, <laughs> ripped up t-shirts. And she was just aghast, right? Because my mother, her daughter had gone to this, mm. you know, girls school, private girls school called Brimmer May. And so my grandmother's like, Oh my gosh. And at one point, so I was kicked out of the house at 16 and just worked low wage, awful jobs until I was 19 and, uh, or yeah, about 19. But I think when I was maybe 18, my grandmother called me one day and said, 
I found an advertisement. She had a very thick New York, uh, like Boston accent. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I just went British there, but um, I found an advertisement uh, for a finishing school. And I think you should go. And I was like, finishing school. You know, I pictured like <laughs> learning how to serve tea and you know, crumpets <laughs> or whatever. And I was like, what? Because I'm just this rock and roll 80s metal yeah, kid, you know? Right. And she said, it's called Barbizon. And I was like, Barbizon? Are you kidding me? Like Barbizon <laughs> in the back of Seventeen magazine, you know? Be a model or just look like one. And I... I thought this was hilarious. Like it was clear to me instantly that my grandmother didn't really know what Barbizon was. Mm-hmm. And they did have a section on setting tables and throwing dinner parties and holding conversation, but you know, it was a nine month money making venture into sure. like modeling. And so I was like, sure. <laughs> Barbizon. And she, so she sends me there on Saturdays, like nine to five, every Saturday for nine months. Actually, I dropped out. I didn't finish Barbizon. I'm sorry to say. I left right before the table setting uh, uh, <laughs> lessons. But while I was there, my teacher at Barbizon, Tamara, a woman named Tamara, became a friend of mine. And I used to hang out with her like on the weekends. She was beautiful. She looked like Snow White. Mm. And she was 10 years older than me. And she had two kids. She was a single mom, like barely making ends meet, but also doing catalog modeling and things like that. And we were in a club one night. She got me into a club, even though I wasn't old enough. It was a huge club called Club Dimensions on the uh, in Northwest Indiana. And um, she it was talking to the bartender, there was a big stage, but nobody was there. No one's playing. There were probably 10 people in the whole place. And uh, the bartender mentioned to her that like, they can't find bands to play. Mm -hmm. Fill the place. And she looks at me, she gestures toward me and she goes, she knows a band, which is true. (laughs) I had gone to high school with a drummer of a band called White Lie. And I just instantly was like, uh, yeah, I know a band. And the guy's like, oh, let me get the manager. <laughs> the manager comes over and I just fake it. I mean, the one of the th- many things I learned from my father who spent his life in sales was like, you just have confidence in the thing that you're selling. I remember my father saying to me many years ago, everybody's in sales, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, especially as a freelance writer, that really stuck with me. I was like, I'm just in sales. Right. And so I just, I had this like swagger, I think. And the manager showed me around the whole club. And so I call up the drummer the next day, like, hey, you want to play this club called Club Dimensions in Northwest India? <laughs> and they ended up selling out the place. And they were, again, it was like the 80s with, you know, metal, had big hair band days. And I loved it. And I ended up booking them for probably a year and a half. I wasn't even old enough to be in most of the clubs I was booking them in. Of course, neither was he, the drummer. And uh, it gave me a confidence that I just had never had. Like, I can do something. I can I can be something, you know? Like, I'd watch them on stage and be like, I mean, this is awful to say, but this is where my 18-year-old brain was. I'd be like, I'm not a groupie like these other groupies. <laughs> I'm their booking agent, you know? <laughs> of course, but I'm you w- But you kind of were. You kind of were their booking agent. I was. I was their booking agent. I was also definitely a groupie. But, um, right. you know, it just was like, oh, I can, I can do something. And the producer, their producer, ended up really taking me under his wing and teaching me everything about the business, befriending me. I mean, we also, you know, dated a little bit. Was this Frank? 
this is Frank and he is the one he's like Stevie Nicks producer these days. Like he's a big producer and uh, Frank Papillardo is his name. Mm -hmm. And um, he said to me one day, like when I was 19 years old, you know, what are you going to do with your life? And I was like, well, this, I'm going to book bands. They're going to make it big, you know? And he was like, no, 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 no. You gotta, you gotta go to college. He had gone to college Mm -hmm. and um, I was just like, I can't go to college. I didn't finish high school. And he said, that doesn't matter. You you can go to college. Just get your GED. And he really made it sound like Mm -hmm. this is not a big deal at all. And he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said to me, like, you got to go to college. What are you going to be a loser for the rest of your life? And I was like, and he didn't say it meanly. He said Mm -hmm. it like almost like a joke. Like, this is your option. You go to college or you're a loser. Right. (laughs) And he made an appointment for me with a guidance admissions counselor changed my life. I mean, it just, yeah, it barbers on like, ha ha ha. It's so funny. Right. But that, that was really a pivotal moment. It has this incredible, profound experience. And Frank, let me just say, like, is still a friend today. Mm -hmm. He refers to himself as chapter 27. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, You know, he came when I was on book tour, some of the guy, the guys from white lie came and played at my, at my book reading. That is amazing. And I, you know, I'm so grateful. The older you get, I think the more grateful we, we are to these, what seem like just momentary chance meetings or chance happenings that end up having this profound effect. And again, I think like, you know what? I was open to it. I said Mm -hmm. yes to this ridiculous thing from my grandmother. I said yes to that manager in that bar. I said yes to Frank. I said yes when the when the college admissions counselor said, we're going to take a chance on you. So some of it is just like, get over your fear, right? I was right. afraid. Of course, I was afraid of doing all those things. Even Barbizon, I was like, they're going to see that I'm like ugly and kick me out or something. Like I was, there was a part of me that was like laughing about it, but also like scared. Like I'm going to be in there with these tall, beautiful, thin women. And they're going to be like, what are you doing here? You know? Right. right. So I think, I think some of it is there's a lesson there in, you know, it's certainly I was scared to move to Cambodia. Like most of the things that have been worth doing in my life are things that I was really afraid of doing. Yeah, I can relate but to that. I, I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to that too. That is truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, so, I was just so, I was there cheering you on when you signed that band. And when you said yes to get in your GED, I was like, you go. I mean, I was so proud of you. Um, and you know, the, the name of that band, White Lie, I, I mm-hmm. actually thought that was like a name you made up for the book because. Oh, it's so crazy. I know. The no. irony of it all. <laughs> I know. I know. It's so funny. It's their actual name. And they, we actually have a group. Uh, I mean, one little white lie here. I'm a band. One little white, yeah, promoter. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we have a playlist on Spotify, a shared playlist now. That's <laughs> so <amazing. funny. laughs> The white lies of it all. Um, yeah. You know, I'm really curious about if you had an intended audience in mind when you wrote this book. Uh, readers. <laughs> <laughs> really. I mean, the book is most often compared to uh, the Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls mm. and um, Educated by Tara Westover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people who like those books would like Women We Buried, Women We Burned. So I guess, you know, if I thought of a reader, I kind of thought of people who liked those books. But no, I think it's, I think for a lot of writers, 
you you try to put the reader out of your mind while you're writing um, in a very conscious way because otherwise you're writing to a reader instead of writing to the story, to the truth of the story, trying to let the story emerge like out of you in a way. And it's a, it's a mature story, right? I mean, it, it does require a sense of kind of understanding this is going to be a difficult topic when you approach this book. There's some really mature themes and there's a lot of conversation these days about books that address controversial subjects. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's laughing. <Yes. laughs> well, because we don't outlaw nuclear war or AR-15s, but we outlaw, we ban books. Like, there's the power of language for you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I knew I, knew I was going to be pushing a button with this. So I'm curious. <laughs> about, <laughs> I like to push buttons. Um I'm curious about really how you feel about banning books, rating books for age groups. If you would let your own child read this book, your book, if you were not the author. Well, she hasn't read it, although I'd love her to. She's never read any of my books. She's, she's Is that by her choice? She just yeah. is like, no, yeah, <laughs> this yeah, can't be good like, because my mother wrote it. <laughs> it's like, if you could put it in snippets on TikTok, I would watch it, you know. <laughs> oh, um, she is 15. So there's yes, that. Yes, she's 15. Yeah. So she absolutely, I would let her read it. I would let her read No Visible Bruises. And I'll tell you why. Because the women in No Visible Bruises who wound up eventually killed by their partner all met that partner when they were 14, 15, 16 years old. Mm. So not only do I think that teenagers should read both these books, I would like to encourage teenagers to read both these books. Teenagers are dealing with adult things in their life. And, you know, there are 18 states right now that have no mandated sex education in this country. In at least six of those states, they're opt-in only, including, for example, Texas. Mm -hmm. And in those states that are opt-in only, they're abstinence-based sex education. Right. So I'm getting, as a professor at American University, I'm getting college students who've never been introduced, for example, to the concept of consent. What do you think happens when they go to their first drinking party, right? Right. And I'm talking across the gender spectrum. They have no sex education. So I think we are doing our kids a disservice. Do I think they should be rated? The books should be rated? I don't know. I, I mean, maybe. Uh, but I think, I think it should be up to the kid what books they read and maybe the librarian. Um, but I'm not for the, the banning of any material, no matter how difficult. I don't think that, that I, I'm Jewish. I don't think Mein Kampf should be banned. Mm -hmm. I think people should read it and learn from it so that we don't have another situation like what happened during the Holocaust. You know, what I tell my daughter and what I tell my students and what I tell, you know, I'm the guest in lots and lots of classrooms. I've spoken to something like 20,000 people since the, since No Visible Bruises came out. My speaking agent gave me the numbers recently. <laughs> and what I say to them is, if you don't read, you will never understand the forces and the systems that control your life and your world. That's what we lose when we aren't reading, even things that are, that are uncomfortable. When we don't give young teenagers the agency to say, no, 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 I'm not ready for that. Or no, you're, you know, you're too jealous. I'm not comfortable with that, right? The stakes are too high. They wind up dead. And you know, if you're my daughter, <laughs> she's known this stuff 
for years. She, you know, she's, she's got a boyfriend now and she gets, you know, she does have the advantage of being able to say to her boyfriend, like, so my mom wrote this book called No Visible Cruises. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I love her boyfriend. He's wonderful. Um, but all kids should have that advantage. All kids should have the power of, of language. Do you think? Obviously, it's more powerful than guns because we don't ban guns. <laughs> well, yeah, that's another episode. Um, you read a lot when you were a child, correct? I think I took that away from your Yes your and no. I, I read a lot when my mother was alive, but after she died, <clears throat> my father was not a reader and he became even less of a reader after, after her death. So we didn't have a lot of books. We weren't allowed to read secular books in in my evangelical house. I think we had we had the Bible. You know, we had both the King James and the New International Version. So, mm. and we had you know Pilgrim's Progress, whatever. But we we were not really allowed to read. I loved reading, but I didn't have access. And we weren't because we weren't didn't have many books. We also weren't a library family. I have, I have so many writer friends who are like every Saturday, my mother took me to the library. I never walked into a library ever until I was older. And so I had a neighbor who one, one afternoon when I was about 14, took me up to her parents' bedroom and showed me her mother's a very extensive collection of Harlequins. (laughs) And she let me borrow them one at a time. And I devoured those books secretly at night. I loved them. And it's, it's why I have no, I really have no judgment. As long as people are reading, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to judge what they're reading. If they want to read, you know, Dean Kunst and all the Har- Harlequin romances is fine with me. Even yeah. my students, you know, who come yeah. in and they, they don't have these long be- reading backgrounds. You know, I eventually made my way to Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. but it took a few decades. And uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive reader now. Um, but, you know, reading is reading is important for brain development, too, not just for right. making sense of the world we live in. So, yeah. And just to like kind of close the loop on this and bring it full circle. I'm just thinking about, number one, if you had had access to more literature and memoirs and information uh, in books, because books clearly spoke to you in an important way, you may have had different opportunities as a child experiencing abuse. And so then coming, you know, fast forward to today for survivors or children who are experiencing abuse now or people who are experiencing domestic violence, when they have access to a book that reveals the patterns of abuse and the power and control and, you know, all the things that that can happen in domestic violence, child abuse, religious abuse, financial abuse, and so on, that is giving them lots of information. It's giving them hope. It's giving them access to potential resources and to support and help. And so reading is critical. And a memoir like this one really can give someone a lifeline in a way that's meaningful to them. Um, whether it's a 15-year-old girl or, you know, someone in a different age group who's experiencing domestic violence, it's important to keep writing, it's important to keep reading, and it's important to keep access to written material open, especially just talking about it within the context of violence in the home, child abuse, domestic violence. It's important to have these stories out there, and I'm so grateful 
to have had this time to talk with you about this today and for you to, for sharing your story with the world. Um, I just want to thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been such a pleasure to be able to have a deep dive with you. Attention Spanish speaking listeners, listen to the end of this podcast for information on how to reach a Spanish speaking representative of Genesis. Atención hispanohablantes, escucha este podcast hasta el final para recibir información de cómo comunicarse con el personal de Genesis en español. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, you can get help or give help at genesisshelter.org or by calling or texting our 24-7 crisis hotline team at 214-946-HELP, 214-946-4357. Bilingual services at Genesis include text, phone call, clinical counseling, legal services, advocacy, and more. Call or text us for more information. Donations to support women and children escaping domestic violence are always needed. Learn more at genesisshelter.org donate. Thanks for joining us. And reminding you always that ending domestic violence begins when we believe her. Genesis, el podcast, anuncia servicios bilingües disponibles en Genesis Women's Shelter y Support. Si usted o una conocida está en una relación abusiva, puede recibir ayuda o dar ayuda a genesisshelter.org o por llamar o mandar mensajes de texto a nuestra línea de crisis de 24 horas al 214-946-4357. Servicios bilingües de Genesis incluyen mensajes de texto, llamadas, consejería, servicios legales, asesoría y más. Llámenos o mándenos un text para más información. Siempre se necesitan donaciones para apoyar a los, las mujeres o a los niños escapando de la violencia doméstica. Aprende más a nuestra página de internet en genesisshelter.org barra inclinada donate. Gracias por unirse con nosotros. Recuerden que el terminar la violencia doméstica empiece cuando creemos a la víctima.